0: This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law
1: Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for construction law today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we'll discuss some of the key legal principles and issues arising in the design-build method of project delivery. I remind our listeners that they may wish to revisit episode two of Construction Law Today, which was a podcast episode devoted to an overview of several types of project delivery, including design-build. Our guest today is one of the very best in the business. Stephen Del Percio is an assistant general counsel at AECOM at their New York metropolitan area office. Steve, welcome to the podcast. And to begin today, I think our listeners would be interested in learning about your background. I think you told me you were an engineer before you became a lawyer.
2: I was, Buzz, uh, before I came over to the dark side. Uh, My undergrad degree was in civil engineering from Columbia. And I worked uh, for two years for a construction manager on two different high-rise office building projects in Times Square in Manhattan uh, before I went to law school at William & Mary. And thank you, by the way, for that introduction. I'm I'm really thrilled to be here today with you. Now, Steve, you were also in private practice, weren't you? I was. Before I came in-house here at AECOM, I worked for almost seven years, first at Zetlin and Deciara also in Manhattan, and then with the construction practice group at Aaron Fox uh, in New York. And I worked for URS for three years before AECOM acquired us uh, in 2014. And so I've been at AECOM now almost five years and focused really exclusively on design-build, P3, and other alternative delivery pursuits. Well, you have a terrific uh, background, Steve. Tell me a little bit about the
1: kinds of uh, projects uh, that you've been working on.
2: So, AECOM participates in design build both as the lead engineer underneath a constructor partner, and then also at the prime design builder level, acting as the design builder, typically in water-wastewater. So, we've been involved in quite a few projects, water, wastewater, drinking water, out in California, also in New England. Uh, On the transportation side, my team has been involved in the Gordie Howe Bridge project uh, in Michigan. Uh, the Newark Air Train, the LaGuardia Air Train pursuits in New York, uh, and also highway projects in Texas, including LBJ East and the Oak Hill Parkway uh, project in Austin. So lots of different issues that we confront, legal issues, pricing issues, depending on which box we're in, who our constructor partner is, and what the market sector of the project is. So it's fun. We're sort of at the intersection of the business, legal issues, strategy, teaming, it's a fun place to practice.
1: Let's get started with some of the basics of design build. How would you describe what it is and how is it different from the traditional design, bid, build project delivery that we've become so familiar with over the years?
2: So Buzz, fundamentally design build is different because the owner is holding a single contract for design and construction. Unlike in design, bid, build, where there are two contracts One for design and one for construction. But I think the best way really to think about about design build conceptually is that it's really similar to CM at risk, where the constructor is involved intimately during design development uh, before a price is agreed to with the owner. But in design build, there is just one contract. I think those two uh, points are really underpin why design build is different.
1: Would you agree? Sometimes you hear it referred to as one-stop shopping. That is, that I I go to a uh, constructor, and I use that term broadly, who can both build it and design it for me. Uh,
2: yes and no. Uh, I think it depends on again the market sector that the project is taking place in. On many of our projects, although the owner is going to a design-build team. Many constructors, although and and this is changing, but many constructors don't have the design capability in-house. And so they enter into a separate subcontract with a design firm like an AECOM or a WSP or one of our competitors. And it's and it's here where the rubber sort of meets the road from a legal perspective. How are the design and construction risks shared between the design firm and the constructor? even though there's one separate contract upstream between the owner and the design builder.
1: I think that's an excellent uh, distinction, Stephen. Thanks for making it. I do think it's important that our listeners understand that it is a slightly different animal from the point of view of the owner when the constructor actually has in-house people as opposed to going out to a design firm. Well, in light of that background, Steve, Let's talk a little bit about um, the increasing emphasis on design-build, because as you and I have discussed before, if you look historically, design-build used to be the rule and not the exception. So what's changed and, and why is it changed?
2: So as, as we chatted in preparing for this podcast, I think it was Vitruvius, as you pointed out, I did take Latin for many years, but uh, that name did not stick out at me when, <laughs> when we, were, we were discussing it. But really, as you correctly point out, all the way back to ancient Rome and antiquity, there really was this concept in construction of a master builder who had responsibility for both design and construction under one roof. And that really was the rule and not the exception up until, and I think there are some interesting articles out there that talk about this, construction really started to specialize during and after the Industrial Revolution with different types of projects and programs that were required. Particularly in the US, I think during the Gilded Age and in the backlash to the Gilded Age, there was this perception that construction was corrupt and that there was a lot of cronyism in how contracts were awarded. And so you started to see a push legislatively, to separate design and construction. And there are some good examples out there of laws that still try and do that, particularly in the Northeast, and particularly in my hometown of New York City, where you see laws like the WICS law, which for certain public projects requires not separate design and construction contracts, but separate construction contracts for each of four major trades. So that's historically sort of where we were up until the Reagan era, which not to turn the conversation political, but I don't think anyone on either side of the aisle would argue that America has been deregulated over the last 40 years. And so those types of laws increasingly, I think, have been loosened to the point where every single state in the U.S., other than North Dakota and Iowa, allow design-build for some, you know, some number of public sector projects in some way, and there's a good study from the FMI consulting group, and this was pre-COVID that said by next year, 44% of all construction spending in the U.S. would come through a design-build delivery model. So I, I think design-build is here to stay, and depending on which way the winds blow in Washington, you know, if we see a, a backlash now to deregulation. If we start going in the other direction, maybe things could change, but it seems like the cat is really out of the bag.
1: So in some sense, we're back to the future. So let's talk about it uh, both from the way it used to be and the way it's going. What do you see as the primary benefits to the design build mechanism for project delivery?
2: And let me just say that Back to the Future is my favorite movie. And I watched it with my eight-year-old daughter for the first time a couple weeks ago, which was sort of life-changing for me and, and for her, frankly. She wants to build a time machine now. But there are a lot of benefits. And I think for the right types of projects and the right teams, it can be a really good choice of project delivery mechanism. And that's because you have one contract, again, for design and construction. It allows the project to move more quickly. You can start construction before your design is complete. I think that's really the first and foremost, the primary benefit of a design-build delivery model.
1: Let's talk about that just for a second, Steve, um, this concept of fast-track. Can you give me a few examples of how that's worked in the real world in the design-build context?
2: Sure. So most design-build contracts are bid based on a design that is 30% complete. Slightly less than 30%. I think the number is 27%. So once the contract is awarded, and because the contractor has responsibility for design and in theory is shoulder to shoulder with the designer as the design is being completed, the contractor can go out into the field and start performing things that it couldn't perform under a design bid build model until the design was 100% complete. Things like foundations, things like utility uh, realignment, which is a huge issue in transportation. Uh, So things like that, allowing the project to get out of the ground more quickly while other aspects of the design are still being finalized.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about design builds application in highly technical projects. Sometimes it's a good direction and other times it may not be. Why? Why?
2: I think because certain owners may be attracted to the idea of design-build faster, quicker, potentially cheaper. There are studies out there that say from organizations that have a vested interest in pushing design-build, like DBIA, the Design-Build Institute of America, saying that there's a 100% decrease in claims on design-build jobs. And so the owner might say, hey, great, I'm going to implement a design-build procurement, but... They don't fully appreciate that to get the full benefit of design build, they have to relinquish control of the design to the design builder. So for a a highly technical, complex project where the owner either wants or really should be involved in developing the design, uh, something like, say, a hospital or a data center or Uh, another type of project where the program is very complicated, the owner may all of a sudden find itself buying back liability for that design, getting in the way of the design build process and really defeating the purpose of the design build delivery model, which is to really let the design builder take control, innovate and, and move the design forward by itself.
1: We'll be back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. We're back with Construction Law Today. Our guest is Steve Del Percio. Steven is an assistant general counsel at AECOM in their New York office. And the subject matter that we've been talking about is design, build, and uh, legal issues and principles related to that. Steve, just before we took the break, we were talking a little bit about the Design Build Institute. And I know that's an important organization in the design, build area. Can you talk about that just a little bit?
2: Sure. I'm I'm actually in process of getting the DBIA credential, uh, DBIA Certified Professional Credential, which is something that they offer. It's it's an industry organization, not much unlike AIA. Uh, They publish a number of form documents that are extremely helpful, uh, whether you are in the prime design builder box or in the design professional design subcontract box. There were virtual conferences this year, but prior to COVID, they put on two different conferences, one in the spring for transportation, aviation, and water-wastewater, and then a national conference in the fall uh, that have education sessions and, and things like that, which are terrific. In addition to going to the forum meeting every year, I would, <laughs> I would urge your listeners who are interested in this topic uh, to go to a DBIA meeting. There will be sessions, not only technical sessions, but also sessions about risk, contracts, procurement. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really good organization, and, and it's worth getting involved with. Yeah, one thing
1: I'll, I'll mention uh, also is that their website has a lot of very useful resources. Well, Steve, we we started in the first half talking about a number of benefits that come from the design-build-project-delivery method. Let's spend a little time now talking about drawbacks. And let me, let me ask you if you can focus first on some of the uh, negatives to design build from the owner's perspective.
2: I think from the owner's perspective, the primary drawback, to the extent it is a drawback, is the owner's lack of control over the design. You don't see too many architect type projects delivered through a design build model. And that's because there is no designer accountability to the owner in design build. The designer's contract is with the design builder and not with the owner. So I think that really is the primary drawback from the owner's perspective.
1: Now, how about from the contractor side? Are there some uh, reasons why contractors uh, might not like the design build structure?
2: For the contractor, remember, you are typically bidding in, certainly in transportation, in the transportation market sector, you are typically bidding on an incomplete set of plans and specs. Usually, and I, I, and I think I mentioned in the first segment, it's usually less than 30% complete. You are expected to provide usually a lump sum price. So if you're not used to to doing that, and certainly in the Northeast, where you have many regional contractors who may not have experience with design build, that can be problematic in terms of getting the price right and getting the quantities right, which is an issue that sort of bleeds into design. But if you think about design as being an iterative process, if I'm bidding a job at 30%, And then I get out in the field and realize I need to move more site material around or I need to pour more concrete than I thought, or I have to install more rebar than I thought I had to install. All of a sudden, that can lead to some big, big numbers and losses. So so getting that right from the contractor perspective can be a real challenge.
1: Now, to to some extent, perhaps the party that's most impacted uh, by this arrangement as compared to Traditional project delivery is the architect. What are some of the things that architects have found that um, they're not particularly pleased with the design build arrangement?
2: And, And I should, before I answer that, add the disclaimer that in my practice at AECOM, we're almost always, not almost always, but frequently, we are in the design sub box as the designer. So my perspective on this may be skewed a bit because of that. But From the designer's perspective, I think you have to keep in mind that this is really a paradigm shift. So many of our engineers, designers, they are used to working in a design, bid, build setting directly for the owner, which in certain market sectors is typically a public agency. Now, all of a sudden, you're no longer working for the public agency. Your client is the contractor. And so the contractor, as you could imagine, has a very different mindset when it comes to the project and delivering the project than a public agency does in a design bid bill. So and managing that client for for many designers, many engineers, many architects, it's a challenge. It's something new and it's something that they're not used to. So just shifting that mindset, I think, is is the single biggest challenge for the designer in a, in a traditional design build
1: well speaking of something new we were talking earlier and we you were describing uh, construction manager at risk and how that was like and, and somewhat uh, or unlike design build, but you had mentioned some additional alternative delivery me- uh, methods that I frankly had never heard of. Can you talk a little bit about, I think you called it progressive design build. What's that?
2: So progressive design build, the best way to think about it is it is a single step selection usually. So it's a clause-based selection, meaning there's very little design that is done pre-award. Once the design builder is selected based on those qualifications, there's a phase one where the design is advanced Usually to somewhere between 50 and I'll say 75% complete, although I have seen it go as high as 90%. Once the design reaches that level of completion, the design builder will propose a price. It can either be a guaranteed maximum price or depending on what the owner wants, it can be a lump sum if the design is advanced significantly above, let's say, 75%. What's important about progressive to, to keep in mind is because the owner isn't performing any design whatsoever, it allows the owner to push spear and risk back on to the design builder. And spear is something we haven't talked about yet, Buzz, but maybe, maybe we ought to briefly um, because it's a really important concept and an open concept in a lot of ways in, in design build procurement currently
1: let's talk briefly about how p3s fit in with design build there's a connection there isn't there
2: there absolutely is uh, we could we could probably have <laughs> a separate podcast talking about p3s it's important to keep in mind that a p3 is not itself a delivery model it's really a contractual arrangement between a public sector entity and a private sector, usually consortium, that allows the private sector to deliver some sort of infrastructure asset uh, for a public purpose in exchange for a concession to operate that asset from the public agency for some period of time, usually 30 to 50 years. Recoup its investment through either a fixed payment over the lifetime of that concession or to collect the revenues from that asset over the lifetime of that concession. When the concession ends, the asset goes back to the public agency. Usually the delivery of the P3 asset is in some form of design build model. So it could be design build finance, design build finance, operate and maintain, all sorts of alphabet suit acronyms, but it really depends on the project, the scope, the procurement, all sorts of things um, that are very project specific.
1: Steve, let me ask you to take off your engineer's hat and take on the role of a lawyer. Let's talk about legal risks. What's unique in design build as far as the kinds of concerns that lawyers have?
2: So let me give you five and then we can can dive into them uh, as you see fit, Buzz. The first is what rights the design builder will have to rely on any owner furnished information. Typically, the owner gives the design builder a very limited right to rely on the proposed project configuration, limited borings if they exist, and in water and wastewater uh, projects, the historical influent data that the owner may have. There's an open question as to whether the owner can disclaim everything that it gives to the design builder and therefore shift all design risk to the design builder. And there are a couple cases out there that seem to suggest the answer is no, but it's really an open issue and something that as lawyers we have to look into depending on the project.
1: Well, let's take the next one in the in this list of um, five categories of legal risk that you had mentioned to me earlier. Let's talk about the so-called back-to-back contracting issue. What's that about?
2: So, when we say back-to-back, what we mean typically is that the prime design builder will look to flow down the entire prime design-build contract to the designer, and then the designer, in turn will have to do the same to its subconsultants, which on a, on a large design-build project can be sizable. In a P3, because of the way the funding works, the concessionaire will look to shift all risk down to the design-build team. And these can be risks that are traditionally have been held by the owner. Things like permitting, the environmental review process, right-of-way acquisition and highway jobs, all of those risks which the owner and the designer really in a design bid build are addressing during design development have now been pushed down onto the design builder so this creates a contracting mess who is going to carry those risks between the constructor team the design builder and the designer and the subs it becomes very very tricky when you're negotiating Contracts and trying to allocate those risks. I, I'm not sure I have a lot of good answers as to as to how to do that. Other than it's very very challenging.
1: The third area of potential problems had to do with the sparen doctrine. How does that fit in to the design build world?
2: So the spear doctrine, and I I was trying to get at that with my first point about the ability of the design builder to rely on information that the owner provides. Remember in design bid build, as I know you and your listeners know, under the Spearing Doctrine, the owner gives the plans and specs to the contractor. If the contractor goes out and builds according to those plans and specs, he's not liable if something goes wrong, right? There's an implied warranty that the owner is providing. In design build, that's not the case because the design builder has responsibility for design. But what if the owner gives some limited information to the design builder, things like borings or site configuration or influent data? Does the owner retain spearing liability or can the owner say, this is a design build, I disclaim all responsibility for it, this is at your risk? It's it's really not clear yet if it will swing one way or the other. So knowing what data is being given to you as the design builder or as the design team and the extent to which you can rely on it is a critical issue during bidding and formulating a price.
1: The fourth area of potential problems relates to that area of the law, which is a particular interest to me. And that is what do warranties mean and how do they work? In other words, is there a distinction between defects caused by negligence and just defects?
2: So that's a great question, Buzz. I think in many public sector design build contracts, and certainly in private sector contracts, the trend that you're seeing is an increase in free from defect, fit for purpose type performance Language being inserted into traditional standard of care or construction type warranty clauses. And and that's a problem because in design build, remember, you're you're bidding on plans and specs that are typically 27% complete. And in a design bid build, non-negligent design errors are usually somewhere between three and six percent of the hard costs of construction. So when you're bidding at 27%, there's the potential that those non-negligent designers could be much higher. So who's responsible for that? Does the design builder as the prime take on that risk? Does it flow down that clause, that fit for purpose clause to its designer? If it does that, is there insurance coverage for a claim that the design uh, did not meet its intended purpose? There, there are a lot of difficult and thorny issues around warranties. And I think, as a matter of best practice, the way to address it is up front with the owner and push hard for separate warranties between design and construction. That's much easier said than done, particularly with public agencies that tend not to change their standard terms and conditions. But it's a big issue, and at the end of the day, it can impact the price, which Really, it's to no one's benefit, not the owner, not the design and construction team, to have not only an increased price, but the potential for claims that are uninsurable.
1: The fifth and final area of risk I'd like to talk about today are what you're beginning to see often discussed in these negotiations. That's caps on liability. How do those fit in and what are the risks associated uh, with that kind of mechanism?
2: Well, I think they tie in a bit with what I was just discussing around uninsurability from the owner's perspective. I think providing caps, providing downside risk protection, it helps improve the price, uh, which at the end of the day is to the owner's benefit. If the prime contract terms are onerous, you're going to end up with bids that must include contingency and Perhaps fewer parties bidding on, especially on large jobs. And because of that, projects potentially getting chopped up into much smaller projects. And if COVID's taught us anything, you never know what's around the corner. So that project that gets chopped up may never may never see the light of day, may never get finished. So I think it's really important for owners to offer liability caps. And it's it's also important for the constructor community to recognize that their design subs have very different risk profile, different costing structure. And so offering caps to them makes the whole team more competitive and helps the team win. So it's a very, it's a thorny issue like many of these issues, but a really, really important one.
1: Steve, I know there's a relatively small but evolving body of case law discussing design build. Could you quickly mention some of the key cases that our listeners may want to be aware of?
2: So there are four cases that I that are, have been sort of on my radar and that, that come up quite a bit in, I don't want to say the literature, but to the extent there is. And those four cases are Mortensen, Metcalf, Coglin, and Middlesex. The Mortensen case is a federal case from the early 90s that basically says the Spearin doctrine does extend to design build. The design builder shouldn't have responsibility to perform an entire peer review of the owner's design. But if the owner does provide aspects of the design, then it should have the right to rely on it, which I think makes sense. The Metcalf case has been talked about quite a bit. It was a federal circuit case from 2014, and it talks about a lot of different things, but the key holding from a design build perspective is that the owner cannot give you a bunch of documents and then tell you you cannot rely on them for purposes of formulating your bid. It's a really important decision from from the reliance perspective, the right to rely perspective that we talked about earlier. The Cogman case is recent, it's from Massachusetts, and it basically says that the Spearin Doctrine can apply in a construction management at risk setting. And I mention it because I think you're going to see more of those types of cases in the future, potentially, as design build spreads and becomes more common. And then finally, Middlesex versus face Spofford, another Massachusetts case, but there's, it's a really good case for design professionals because it acknowledges that when the contractor formulates its bid pre-award, it is doing so based on a design that is not complete. And and because of that, it would be unreasonable to hold the designer responsible for mistakes in the contractor's pricing and cost estimates. So four cases touching on different issues, but um, each of them very interesting and I think important in different ways.
1: Stephen Del Percio of AECOM, their New York office, has been our guest today. Steve, thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Buzz. This was a lot of fun and uh, really appreciate the opportunity.
0: You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, JTarlow at LawMT.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.